I'm not going to be ignored, Dan. Hey guys, I'm Robert. I'm Chris. And we're the Film Flamers, back with another episode. It's February, and everyone's getting ready for love. So we thought we'd discuss the perennial love favorite horror film. Fatal Attraction. That's right. But before we get into Fatal Attraction, uh, let's talk about some of the stuff that we have got going on for some housekeeping. That's right. Uh, Starting now in February, The Film Flamers, your favorite podcast, is going to be a weekly show. It's not my favorite podcast. Lies. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're going weekly, guys. So we're going to have our main episode on whatever movie we're going to cover for the month, as well as our top 10, as well as sequel ideas. And yeah, so the last episode will be maybe like a hot take on a current movie or something that we love, but don't want to, you know, spend an hour talking about, or maybe even some fan picks from Twitter or Facebook. So we'll have some polls for that. And, you know, we'll get some feedback and do those movies as well. But either way, at the start of every week, to start your work week off right, you can get some film flamers on your commute. Make sure you check out our Patreon content as well, because for last month, we came out with Rosemary's Baby uh, sequel ideas, as well as our hot take on Anna and the Apocalypse. So check that out. It's not to be missed, guys. Check that hot take out. And stay tuned after the episode, guys, because we're going to tell you what's coming up for next month on the regular feed and what's going to be available for Patreon this month. Well, I think that wraps up our housekeeping, so why don't we uh, dive into Fatal Attraction? Let's. I've been waiting to talk about this movie, um, well, for several weeks now, preparing for this. Fatal Attraction is a 1987 psychological thriller directed by Adrian Lin from a screenplay written by James Dearden, based on his 1980 short film Diversion, which I have not seen. I haven't seen it either. I tried to look for it, but uh, there were way too many like Google hits, and I didn't feel like combing through all of it trying to find the full short film. Yeah, me too. The The music for the film was composed by Maurice Jarre, who also did like Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Zhivago, Ghost. But strangely in this film, the music actually doesn't show up until about half an hour in. Yeah, I was, uh, you know, because you've trained me now to start paying attention to scores in movies. And so I made sure to note the composer. And then halfway through the movie on this rewatch, I was like... Where the music at? Yeah, yeah. I actually hadn't noticed that before until yeah. I read it. And so I was just like, that's an interesting. I'll have to rewatch it and see if mm-hmm. I pay attention to that. Fatal Attraction stars Michael Douglas, Glenn Close, and Ann Archer. And all three of them have gotten accolades or at least a critical acclaim for these parts. Uh, especially the two women, for sure. I think. Um, yes. Fatal Attraction was made on a budget of fourteen million dollars, and worldwide, it's made three hundred and twenty million dollars. Well, that was just during its release, right? So I could imagine this, we can go ahead and call this movie a bona fide hit, right? Yeah. Well, it was the highest grossing film of nineteen eighty seven worldwide, right? And there were a lot of movies that came out in nineteen eighty seven that are very popular to this day. So that's that's just something for Fatal Attraction. Yeah, I mean, it had six nominations at the Oscars. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress for Glenn Close, Best Supporting Actress for Ann Archer, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Film Editing. Rotten Tomatoes gives the film a weirdly low rating of 78%. My mind is blown at the fact that it has such a low rating, especially for a Best Picture nominee. And, and for all... something that is so highly regarded even to today, I mean, that's that's a low, low rating. And I'm sure that in our discussion of the film, we might you know come to the crux of why that is what it is. Yeah, I'm sure it's a lot of the people thinking that parts of this are problematic, which will, of course, uh, some of that we agree with and we'll get into. Right. But the consensus actually reads, a pot boiler in the finest sense, Fatal Attraction is a sultry, juicy thriller that's hard to look away from once it gets going. 
So I don't know. That's like one of the worst. <laughs> that's one of the worst like consensus <laughs> I've actually read uh, for a movie. But I don't know. It is what it is. Aside from those Oscars, it was also nominated for four Golden Globes, uh, Best Picture Drama, Best Director, Best Actress, and Best Supporting Actress. It was nominated for one Saturn Award for writing, so I guess that can, you know, clearly mark it into horror territory. And oddly enough, it was nominated for a Grammy. Oh, really? For score. Oh, okay. (laughs) Well, you know, uh, Maurice Jarre, right? Yeah. Uh, Glenn Close's performance as Alex Forrest was ranked number seven on AFI's 100 Years, 100 Heroes and Villains list. So she's pretty high up there. For a time, she was considered the most hated woman in America. Not Glenn Close, but the character. Well, at this point, I think uh, we can save some of that conversation for later. So let's not wait anymore. This is Fatal Attraction. The film is about an adulterous, abusive man who repeatedly breaks into a mentally ill, disfigured woman's apartment to threaten and assault her until she is slowly driven insane. (laughs) Nailed it. (laughs) Well, that's one side of it. Let's actually talk about the movie now, shall we? This is Fatal Attraction. A look that led to an evening. We were attracted to each other at the party. That was obvious. You're on your own for the night. That's also obvious. A mistake he'd regret all his life. Now, where's your wife? Daddy! Honey, oh, God, I... And you're here with a strange girl being a naughty boy. I don't think having dinner with anybody's a crime. I've got to see you. This is going to stop. No, it's not going to stop. It's going to go on and on. She keeps calling the apartment. Hello? Every time Beth answers the phone, she hangs up. I'm scared, Jimmy. You play fair with me? Do you have an affair with her? I'll play fair with you. I don't want to lose my family. Why could you do that? Now you're scared of me, aren't you? You're afraid. Gutless, heartless, spineless. If you ever come near my family again, I'll kill you. You understand? Daddy! I'm not going to be ignored. Alicia, where's Ellen? She's gone. Call the police. Whatever resentment she's feeling, she's probably got it out of her system. She didn't get it out of her system. What then? Fatal attraction. I guess he thought you'd get away with it. Well, you can't. Dan Gallagher, played by Michael Douglas, is living a very charmed life. He's happily married to Beth, played by Ann Archer, and is a successful attorney in Manhattan where they live with their young daughter Ellen. At a book release party thrown by the publishing company Dan represents, he briefly meets one of the new editors, Alex Forrest, played by Glenn Close. They seem to share a connection despite Dan being married. When his wife Beth and daughter Ellen travel to her parents to tour a home for a possible move to the suburbs, Dan attends a weekend meeting where Alex happens to be their representing editor. They decide to have a drink after, where they have an innuendo-laced conversation about the possibility of a one-night stand. After a series of awkward sexual encounters, including one on an elevator, Dan heads home early in the morning. When Beth cannot arrive home as planned, Alex prods Dan into spending the day and eventually the evening with her. They share a meal and discuss their favorite opera, Madame Butterfly. When Dan attempts to leave after yet more sex, Alex has a breakdown and slits her wrists, wiping the blood all over Dan's face. He stays all night until he's sure that she's all right, and then he leaves, saying that they shouldn't see each other again. 
Unable to accept this, Alex shows up at Dan's office with an apology and an offer to see Madame Butterfly with her. He declines. She then begins calling his office excessively until it becomes clear that he'll not accept her calls. So naturally, she starts calling his home at all hours of the day and night until finally telling Dan that she's pregnant with his child. She wants to keep the baby and explains that he should be a part of the baby's life, despite his never wanting to see her again. After breaking into her apartment to search for any clue as to if she's really pregnant and finding nothing, Dan decides to cut her off completely, changing his home number and preparing for a suburban move. What was he going to find in her apartment? Like ice cream and pickles or something? I don't... (laughs) Maybe other boyfriends or pregnancy (laughs) tests with someone else? Like, I don't know, but, you know, break and enter. It's the way to go, I guess. Later, Alex shows up at his apartment as a potential buyer and meets Beth. She says nothing about their affair, but this angers Dan enough to confront her, where she explains that she will not be ignored. Dan. Dan. (laughs) Dan quickly moves his family to the suburbs, but Alex will not be deterred. Dan. (laughs) She's... (laughs) That's funny. She spies on the family in their home, which makes her vomit in the bushes for some reason. <laughs> She's classy. She sends Dan a tape with some pretty nasty verbal abuse. She pours acid on Dan's car and destroys it. You know, just some normal flirting. We've all done it. Yeah. Finally, while the family is out, she kills Ellen's pet rabbit and leaves it to boil on the stove, where Beth finds it. Dan finally tells a terrified Beth about his indiscretion, and Beth demands that he leave, but not before telling Alex via phone that she will kill her if she doesn't stop harassing her family. Days later, Beth is thrown into a panic when she attempts to pick up Ellen from school and finds that someone has already taken her. It was Alex, obviously, assumingly posing as a family friend. Alex takes Ellen to an amusement park while Beth frantically drives around searching for her. She gets into an accident, badly injuring herself, and Alex drops Ellen off at home. At the hospital, Beth forgives Dan and they return home. Furious, Dan forces his way into Alex's apartment and attempts to strangle her. He stops, but she attacks him with a butcher knife from the kitchen. He overpowers her, but leaves her before he does any serious harm. As Dan leaves, a deluded, hopeful smile spreads across her face. Later, Beth is preparing a bath for herself and sends Dan to make her some tea. Alex appears in the bathroom behind her and confronts Beth, while nervously cutting her own leg with her oft-used trusty butcher knife. (laughs) Don't leave home without it. Dan hears Beth screams as Alex attacks her and rushes upstairs. Dan wrestles Alex into the bathtub where he seemingly drowns her. Suddenly, Alex rises out of the tub with a knife, but Beth, who had run to get a gun, shoots her in the chest, killing her. Police and other emergency teams arrive to clean up Dan's mess, and the couple lovingly enter their suburban house, putting the whole affair behind them. Then, (laughs) It's safe to say from that synopsis that this movie has has a lot going on in what seems to be a very short amount of time, right? Yeah. So we're talking like... Weeks. Weeks, right? Possibly, yeah. So, I mean... No matter how you feel about the movie, I think that everybody at some point has had a relationship with someone that they feel maybe have crossed some sort of line, right? Yeah. Uh, or I've never was experienced probably some form of unrequited love. Right. So um, it's it's kind of easy to put yourself – or have like been on you know the, the other end of that and yeah. just have, have felt something about somebody that you know they weren't sharing their feelings for. Um, so I think no matter how you watch this movie, you can sort of put yourself in either person's perspective, 
right? And I think that that speaks a lot about this film. And I think it really speaks a lot about Adrian Lin's direction, too, and especially the, the, the screenplay for this movie. Yeah, um, I was looking. I was like, this is such an amazing, iconic, studied film. I was looking for other things that the director had done. And I just saw like Nine and a Half Weeks, Jake's Bladder, Indecent Proposal, and Lolita. Uh, like, <sighs> I love Adrian Lin. I just, I mean, every time I watch one of his movies, I just fall in love with it. They all have their share of problems, you know, but he can make a nice, like, sexy drama or sexy thriller. Nine and a Half Weeks is one of those, like, you know, Skinamax favorites. Oh, sure. They're all good. But I think in this movie, it's the performances that drive it over the top into classic range. Yeah, but I mean, like, he's, it, the performances are great, and I'm sure that he got a lot out of his actors, too. I'm just saying that, like, when, when he makes a movie, I, I tend to like it. Yeah. I, I like Flashdance quite a bit. Um, I really, really love Jacob's Ladder as well. I mean, he, he is a horror director, no matter what, mm-hmm. at the end of the day. So. Well, a lot of other directors were actually approached to direct this movie, uh, including John Carpenter and uh, Brian De Palma. They were both offered the chance to direct, but they both backed out because they feared the story was too similar to uh, Play Misty for Me from the, like 1971. The Clint Eastwood movie? Yeah. Yeah, it's a very similar movie. There's a lot of differences, though, because in that movie, Clint Eastwood is sort of like this playboy DJ, right, mm-hmm. who gets like a stalker fan. Um, but he's not married. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, he, he can truly be like the hero of that film in a way that Michael Douglas sort of just really shouldn't in this one. Mm-hmm. But um, I can see Brian De Palma really taking this screenplay and doing something really well with it as well. It's sort of in his wheelhouse. Yeah, and I'm, I'm kind of morbidly curious to see what John Carpenter would have done with this. Uh, I guess it would have been Glenn Close wearing a William Shatner mask or something like that, right? <laughs> or No, I mean, he does tension really well. I mean, think about The Thing, right? So I True. don't know. Maybe, maybe he would have done a good job, but... Or obviously... maybe it would have been Jamie Lee Curtis instead of Glenn Close in this movie, which, I mean, come on. Yeah, but let's keep it real. Yeah. <laughs> uh... No, and she was approached for the movie, too. Was she really? Yes. There's okay. a huge slew of actresses. I know that you you told me off mic that you had a list, and I have no idea who these people are, so can you just let me have it? Oh, well, sure. Um, uh, Kirstie Alley, who was under consideration <laughs> from the role, she actually provided a tape of a woman who has been stalking her husband, uh, Peter Stevenson, in which she was uh, begging him to be a part of his life. Uh, the woman's words were actually used verbatim in the film. That's crazy. I don't know which words. Maybe it was the, I will not be ignored, Stephen, or Parker, or whatever the fuck his name was. Yeah, I was going to say but, yeah, Parker, right? Yeah, Kirstie Alley's husband. Of course, the name in the movie is Dan. But uh, Sharon Stone passed over the role, um, but she later uh, would star, of course, with Michael Douglas five years later with Basic Instinct. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see, Elizabeth Shue was originally considered for the role of Alex <laughs> <What>? Forrest. <laughs> But she was forced to turn the role down because she had signed to the Disney movie Adventures in Babysitting in 1987. <laughs> so instead of playing Alex Forrest, she played a teenager. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently. Uh, that would have held like a whole new dimension to that movie if it was Elizabeth Shue at that point. Yeah, it would have changed everything. Yeah. Uh, Sally Field. <laughs> oh. Come on, like we're get, just getting started. Cool. Sally Field was considered for the role, uh, but she immediately turned it down because she feared that her fans would not accept her playing as an antagonist. <laughs> you really don't like me. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay, but <clears throat> let me get started with all of the people that auditioned and were considered for this role. Okay, I'll try not to laugh. Ellen Barkin, Kim Basinger, Jennifer Beals, Candace Bergen, Kate Capshaw, Stockard Channing, <laughs> Cher. 
Jamie Lee Curtis, Gina Davis, Julia Louise Dreyfus, Morgan Fairchild, Diana Ross, Emma Thompson, Mia Farrow, Faye Dunaway, yep, Angelica <laughs> Houston, Carrie Fisher, Jennifer Gray, Melanie Griffith, Farrah Fawcett, Jodie Foster, Linda Hamilton, Daryl Hannah, Goldie Hawn, Holly Hunter, Olivia Newton-John, Diane Keaton, Jessica Lange, Jennifer Jason Lee. Heather Locklear, Madonna, Bette Midler, that would have been interesting, <laughs> Demi Moore, Lena Owen, Catherine O'Hara, <laughs> Annette O'Toole, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer, Mimi Rogers, Ooh. Isabella Rosalini, that's interesting, Meg Ryan, Susan Sarandon, Jane Seymour, Sybil Shepard, Sissy Spacek, Mary Steenburgen, Meryl Streep, Kathleen Turner, that would have been cool. Uh, Tracy Ullman, Tracy Ullman, really. <laughs> Raquel Welch and Sigourney fucking Weaver. Okay. I think it would have been just easier to say that every actress who ever has acted in film auditioned for the role of Alex Forrest. Well, there was a lot that were also going for Dan. Uh, Dan Aykroyd, Jim Belushi. <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> Nicholas Cage, Chevy Chase, Kevin Costner, Kevin Klein, uh, Harrison Ford, Robert De Niro, Mel Gibson, Tom Hanks, John Hurd. John Hurd, really? Uh, Kevin <laughs> Kevin Klein, Steve Martin, Rick Moranis, Bill Murray. <laughs> Mick, yeah, I don't understand. I think people are just like adding names in here for this. I know. I mean, this, Jack some Nicholson, of this cannot be true. Al Pacino, Dennis Quaid, Arnold Schwarzenegger, <laughs> Martin Sheen, O.J. Simpson, mm-hmm. <laughs> Sylvester Stallone, John Travolta, John Vaught. And Bruce Willis. <laughs> okay, so either this movie was like so sought after for everybody in Hollywood. The writing. Right? Yeah, everyone wanted these juicy roles, and especially Alex. They really wanted the role of Alex. I find this so funny because I've, I've read that studio after studio passed on this movie. Mm-hmm. And it finally took, you know, a female executive at Paramount to, to well, I think do the it. studios were afraid of it, but the actors wanted it. And so yeah. there was a lot of contention there. Uh, the writing actually ended up being completely like changed, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, they asked actually uh, Nicholas Meyer to be a script doctor, who actually ended up essentially redrafting it and creating the whole shooting script, including a new ending. And I think that ending was the original ending. Uh, so I don't know what the original, original ending was. Um, Nicholas Meyer is also known for his directing and writing for two of my favorite Star Trek films, Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan, and Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Um, since this was based on his short film, right, I would think that there'd be like a slap in the face to James Dearden, you know? Yeah, but I think I think he may have been the one, like producers asked, and I think James Dearden was okay with it because it needed to be adapted to a full, you know, feature film. Right. But I don't know. Um, there could have been some contention there, but I, I do it. know that he later adapted his full-length screenplay to uh, a stage play and with the original ending intact. Hmm. So... <clears throat> Well, like we were talking about the actresses, uh, producers Sherry Lansing and Stanley Jaff both had serious doubts about casting Glenn Close because they didn't think she could be sexual enough for the role of Alex. But it was ultimately her audition that got her the role because she like let her like hair just like hang out all frizzy. She wore a tight black dress and she was convinced in the audition that she like basically ruined her career. But uh, I don't know why she would say that, having already like three Oscar noms or whatever at that she point. She had four at this point, and but yeah, I know she felt that she was very typecast already because she always played like a very you know down to earth yeah. you know Homemade nice girl. Yeah. yeah, but they said uh, an extraordinary erotic transformation took place in that audition. She was this tragic, bewildering mix of sexuality and rage. I watched Alex come to life. 
And she yeah. does a phenomenal job. Whenever I watch movies, um, especially ones that I'm watching for the podcast, I sort of try to keep a, a list of my thoughts as I'm watching it on that first viewing. Mm-hmm. And I wrote in this one, Glenn Close is a revelation. So, I mean, like, I don't I don't know what particular scene caused me to write that down. I can't remember. But, I mean, obviously I was struck by something. I know. So she was just phenomenal in this movie. I she, love it. Yeah, she just, she's one of those actresses that could just do so much in just a glance. And just from her very first scene, she does that, like, icy death glare at yes. you know, the guy trying to flirt with her. And from that moment, you're like, that could have been where you were like, she's a revelation. <laughs> because, <laughs> no, I wrote in my notes for that, I wrote, Glenn Close is terrifying right away. Because yep. the first time you see her and she shoots his friend that glance, I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> it looks like, good kill. And that's a little line from like, the movie. If her eyes were a butcher knife right now <laughs> she would let you have it <laughs> yeah well to prepare for her role uh glenn close actually consulted like she's never done this level of preparation for a role at least before this and she consulted at least two psychologists hoping to understand like the psyche and motivations of um alex because uh, especially because she was uncomfortable with the bunny boiling scene, um, which is actually like bunny boiler is now like a word in Webster oh, dictionary yeah. or oh, whatever. Oh yeah, it's in the Oxford dictionary now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but she thought it was too extreme. But basically, they told her it actually wouldn't be out of the question for someone who had experienced incestual sexual abuse as a child. And so she went along with it. Of course, she didn't really have a choice to go along with it because she wasn't her writing and stuff. But right. she wanted to be able to play it realistically. And it's a character that she had grown to love, a very self-destructive character that she didn't view as overly violent to others. Um, you know, we'll get into that later with the original versus the the theatrical ending. Right. But I think, I mean, just knowing that she put, she put that kind of prep into it, you can tell from her performance that she really grabbed onto this role and, you know, took it by the reins and ran with it. And in someone else's hands, I mean, probably especially like Kirstie Alley, I don't know. I mean, it would have been a completely different that. movie. And maybe it's just because we're so used to seeing her performance in this movie and we've grown accustomed to it that it's too hard to imagine anybody else. I've grown accustomed to her smile. <laughs> I've grown accustomed. To her face. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, I mean, her performance in this movie, I just, I cannot. I I think I originally saw this movie when I was a very young teenager. It's probably one of those, like, late night Skinamax sort of, like, things that was on. Mm -hmm. I mean, because when this was released, it was supposed to be a sex thriller, right? Yeah. And I saw it again later in my early 20s. And so this for watching it for this podcast was my third time to watch fatal attraction. And I, I love this movie and I I can't, I can't imagine why I haven't seen it more times. I don't know what it is that keeps me from watching this movie, but at this point I think I'm going to end up watching it a whole lot more often. Yeah. It's just a great movie. Like it's like tense and funny and like enjoyable and sad and, it, it's just a really good ride, honestly. And then yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's just like a, really well paced. It's like a young child on a roller coaster. Oh God. <laughs> uh, so another thing this movie does really well is, and this is part of that overanalyzation part of it, but it has a lot of symbolism, visual symbolism in it. And at the beginning, you can see the family is all wearing white, kind of like virginal white, including the daughter, just one big, long white mm-hmm. t-shirt. Michael Douglas is kind of uh, tripping through the hallways, over the, the toys and everything. Everything's kind of getting in his way, but everything's still kind of virginal, white, and innocent. And you can see that kind of change over the film where, you know, things kind of open up for him. You know, there's darker clothing. You know, things are getting, like, cleaner. And then everything just gets into chaos, 
right? And um, so I feel like there's a lot of set design and choices that were made aesthetically and, you know, physically in the film itself that served the story and kind of helped set up the themes and the feelings from just not even in the script. It might have been in the screenplay, but... Um, you know, just basically showing that family life and how cool and awesome and, and, and feel good it is. But at the same time, there's things that are just getting in your way and are distracting and are, you know, kind of um, stopping you from kind of moving forward or having freedom. Well, I think you're absolutely right. I think, too, as far as Glenn Close's wardrobe in this movie, she's either dressed in all white or all black. Right. Even to the point where when she's wearing white, her umbrella in the rain is white. Yep. Right. So, I mean, there's there's so much stark contrast between colors and it has to go into what, you know, is going on in that character's life at that particular moment. And I think that the stylistic choices in this movie are profound when it comes to just looking at a character and going straight into what they're experiencing at that particular moment, especially the lamp scene. Yeah. Where she's flicking the lamp on and off, just sitting there by herself, listening to Madame Butterfly. Right. And I, you know, some people would say, oh, my gosh, she's crazy. The way I see that is, is that she's incredibly lonely, right? Yeah. I mean, she's just sitting in her apartment by herself. She's got no one to turn to, no friends. All she can do is sit there and flick that light on and off, right? In her all black or all white, whatever she was wearing at that particular moment. And yeah. it's just, I mean, the, the styling in this movie is fantastic. Yeah, and I don't know that there's like, you know, American beauty levels of symbolism in this film. <laughs> but There's no plastic bags. You know, and in this kind of borderlines on overanalyzation, which I never want to get into. Uh, but sometimes it's too hard not to. But there, it was, a lot of this was done purposefully. And I think it was done really, really well here. This is a good example for it should any of you want to go and look for it mm-hmm. okay let's talk about the original ending because okay so in the theatrical ending of course um she goes and ultimately when michael douglas's character dan refuses or stops strangling her and he leaves her there kind of disgusted with himself and like i'm done with this and leaves the apartment as he's le- leaving the apartment you see this like sick sad smile like hopeful smile spread across her face and you know it's like because she's so deluded enough to know that that is like her sign of affection like he didn't mm-hmm. kill her so like there's hope for her <laughs> because that's he what really she's been driving him to is like violently trying to like get him to come to a decision right right and so now she's thinking the only thing in her way essentially is the wife and child so she goes and uh and attacks essentially his wife while she's trying to take a bath breaks and enters and you know of course he's locking the doors after she's already made it into the house and everything yeah but they attack and of course ultimately he tries to strangle her again in the bathtub and then ultimately gets shot by beth um and the story ends but this was an ending that was not the original and this is an ending that it took two weeks for uh, Glenn Close to even agree to do because she outright refused because she had said, you know, essentially that it's not realistic for the character. The character was much more self-destructive. And so the only way she agreed to it was make by making some subtle changes like that was her idea to cut her own leg with the knife while she's talking to the wife just to show that she's just as willing to hurt herself as she is others. But... As soon as she's, you know, attacking with her with her with a knife, she goes from borderline personality disorder to full on psychotic. Well, and so that's what changed the character and made her like the most hated woman in America at that point and made her into such an iconic villain versus a more realistic portrayal of someone with that disorder. I, I get, you know, her caveats, right? And cutting herself and trying to show that. But we already know from the movie that she's willing to hurt herself. Yeah. You know, and others. So, I mean, she probably didn't need to hold out that much. Now, or 
let's talk about the alternate ending, I guess, at this point, or the original ending. The original ending uh, was shown with the last fight that they had where he refuses to strangle her to death or whatever, and they leave the knife on the count the kitchen counter where she had attacked him right. with it in her own apartment after he basically breaks in and assaults her. <laughs> um, of course, she had killed a bunny and you know, taken his kid by then. Yeah, I but, mean, she had done some bad shit, too. Yeah, you know? but, you know, this is, like, the second time he's broken and entered and, like, the yeah. second time he assaulted her, so. <laughs> she should really just take that key off that, like, ledge. <laughs> <laughs> right. God. So anyway, like uh, after that sick smile com- comes across her face or whatever, it's shown that she it's basically that she understands, but she still loves him. Right. And but that it, she knows it's over. And so she essentially had killed herself by slitting her own throat with that knife uh, while Madam Butterfly is playing. But it's made to look like I don't know if it was her intention or not, possibly uh, to make it look like Michael Douglas character Dan had killed her. That's what I assume. And so they come to their house and they arrest him. And Beth is like frantically looking for the lawyer's number, their, you know, family friend, uh, but finds the tape that Alex had sent him earlier with all the creepy, like, I can't live without you. Next time I'm just going to cut deeper, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, so yeah. And so she like, she's just overjoyed apparently finding this tape and rushes <laughs> off. And it's alluded that of course that exonerates him and they can live their happy life. But it's also, it's also has some really cool scenes in it. And of course, Ann Archer was already nominated for this, but like most of her like heavy lifting acting wise is done in these scenes that were cut from the theatrical version. She's like running after the car while he's being taken away, you know, it has that moment, you know, that really cinematic moment where she's crying and putting her hand on the car window. And, well, and that whole scene where she's listening to the tape too. I mean, you're right. I, I was watching this movie and I had looked up the Oscar nominations before because I knew there was, you know, obviously a Glenn Close nomination and a Best Picture. And I didn't realize that Ann Archer had been nominated for Best Supporting Actress for this. And while I was watching it on this viewing, I, I thought to myself, why? <laughs> I was like, all she does is like she smiles at her husband, reads books to her kid and, you know, puts on makeup while you know, trying to flirt with her husband a little bit. Mm-hmm. I mean, she she plays a really doting wife very well, but, I mean, I didn't think that it was Oscar caliber, really. Having watched that original ending, she is just amazing in those very short minutes. And, yeah. I mean, I... <laughs> I know that the, this ending didn't test well with audiences, and I've read that Adrian Lin, Adrian Lin said that the most applause and reaction he got from the film was the scene where Ann Archer is talking on the phone to Alex and says, if you ever come near my family again, I'll kill you, right? Mm-hmm. And that's when he was like, oh, we have to change this ending. Well, yeah, they did test the ratings, too, yeah. and so there was just not enough of an emotional crescendo mm-hmm. with Alex kind of killing her. It kind of flopped a little bit because there's this very last kind of shock of, oh, my God, is he going to go to jail and get blamed for this? And it's kind of a downer ending. And then, of course, it alludes that he gets exonerated or whatever, but it's kind of like ends kind of floppy a little bit. Yeah, I mean, we can assume that he gets exonerated and and Alex is dead regardless, right? And what sort of pisses me off is that in either version, Michael Douglas is off Scott Clean, Right. Well, at the same time, like the the way the orig- the movie was originally written is a little bit more realistic and less problematic or sexist. So, like the pro- a lot of the problematic and sexist issues with this film ending are incidental because they wanted the movie to just flow better. Right. Right. 
And so that it wasn't written that way. And so that's why I give this movie kind of a, a pass a little bit for a lot of these problematic issues that some of these pe- people have written about, you know, because the the murder like they, it's been this movie's been analyzed and overanalyzed for years and years yeah, for real. And so like people are going in and seeing like Alex's murder by Beth juxtaposes the relationship between the two characters with Alex being victimized and Beth violently protecting her family. And it's kind of a win for the, the homemaker mom and a loss for the career woman. You know, well, and, and so I think I feel like that's an overanalyzation, but at the same time, it is there in the themes throughout the film. Well, let's not forget too; it's 1987, right? And yeah. so, like, we're at the heart of like right-wing, family-oriented home life, right? Yeah. And something has to happen in this movie for audiences of that time period to accept the ending, right? And having a wife forgive her husband for his infidelity and shoot his mistress, you know, creates something that mass audiences would like. And as much as I like the original ending that was cut, I got no problems with the one that we see in the movie today. So. Me either. Um, I, and the only problems I really have with it, because it seems to fit the story better as far as thematically and like pacing wise, it just works better for as a film. Yeah. As a, as a piece of entertainment. It's a good to know much of the film. And plus th- that drowning scene is gnarly as fuck. I mean, like, I I know, didn't you tell me something about, like, they didn't want to put those white contacts in her eyes or something Yeah, like he that? came back years later, and he's like, I'm really, like, thinking that I made it a little too over the top by putting, like, the white contacts in her. I made it too horrific, you know? I disagree. I think that there are several... It was only for a bit second. I know, too, but I mean, so. but it's effective to me as a horror fan. Mm-hmm. And this movie sort of, like, teeters the line between horror, horror adjacency, or just, like, thriller, right? And it's those moments where, like, the drowning scene or the bunny scene, Right. That really pushed this into like horror ground. Yeah. But, you know, it just works better, but it does have that kind of problematic element of like the monstrous feminine, like, quote unquote, monstrous feminine as a tool, 1980s horror. Um, and beyond where a woman has rejected familial values and reverted to hysteria, questioning the true values of women and what it means to be feminine. But at well, the same time, I feel like for a lot of these movies, while that might be a theme and something that society is dealing with, you know, I don't feel like these movies are like, that's what it's trying to say. No writers you know, out there. I could be wrong trying to say like, you know, well, home, Betty homemaker, good, you know, career woman, bad. I think this is just like, people's idea of like good storytelling well i mean i know that i mean like characters in movies are often stereotypes i mean and that's how you write so you can so people will know in a very short amount of time what this character is right and if you look at values from different time periods yeah i think that some people would think that a homemaker would be better than a career-driven woman right i think that people would actually pity alex because you know she's lonely she doesn't seem to have a lot of friends it goes after married men for whatever reason right and so i mean they would end up seeing her as more of a villain than than anything else and that's how this movie really took that path right so I feel like any person like kind of you know how we, we all kind of deal with our life by going home and sleeping and kind of dreaming about it we process our lives mm-hmm. through our dreams and I feel like movies are kind of like the dreams of society where you kind of see things in movies that are dealing with what's going on in society at that particular time and I feel like any kind of statements that are made a lot of the time are incidental and it's just a reflection of what's going on in the, the kind of the collective consciousness or the 
the public psyche. And I feel like this is a good example of that. Oh, it's great. Because, I mean, this is a really good example of a film where we can look back, you know, decades later and see the problems in it and see how we've progressed as society, especially when it comes to things like mental illness. Right. Alex is very clearly mentally ill. Mm -hmm. Borderline personality is what I've read most about, you know, her um, diagnosis. Right. Mm -hmm. I actually in doing some research for this movie, I came across a course at Rutgers that they take horror movies and thrillers and they let their psychology students diagnose based on what they see in the movies. And this is something that they show in that. So I think at the time in 1987, maybe, you know, we're not as woke about mental illness, you know, as we are these days. And so it's treated more as sort of a villainy aspect. I think that if this movie were made today, it would be completely different. Okay. (laughs) I'm so dismissive (laughs) sure (laughs) how am I supposed to talk to you Chris if you don't take my calls at the office I mean I won't be ignored Chris (laughs) um I know that in this stage of the game, at the time that we live in now, people criticize this movie for her depiction because of mental illness. I think it's kind of hard and problematic. And, you know, I don't like to use that word sometimes. We, we can't go back to things that were made in the past and say that this is a bad movie because of how they treat, you know, mental illness or how they treat their, their feminist standpoints. Yeah, we have to be very careful about how we look at movies for the past through a modern lens. Or a lens from today, you know, post Me Too, you know, and all that stuff. Right. I think it's important to look at film and art for the time it was created in. Uh, but I, I honestly, I still just don't feel like this movie is that problematic. I mean, you can see the themes there and you can kind of and it makes you think. And I think that's really great that a movie can do that. And, you know, I think it's uh, at worst, it's basically a morality tale or you know, a warning against adulterers oh, or whatever. it's certainly a, a, like a fable like that. You learn a lesson, right? I mean, we're supposed to, Michael Douglas is supposed to have learned a very valuable lesson by the end of this movie, you know, keep your fucking dick in your pants or whatever, right? But ultimately, when you watch this, he is not portrayed as the villain that he should be. The entire movie itself, everything that happens is because of him and a decision that he makes at the start of that movie. I mean, it takes two people to create that situation, right? But they could he could easily just have had a drink with a colleague and her bring up the fact that they could, you know, easily have a one night stand or in this case, a one weekend stand. Right. And all he had to do was say, no, I have to go home and walk my dog and eat my leftover spaghetti. You know, so Mm -hmm. and like the choices that he made really put his family and himself in this peril. And it really pissed me off on this watch because he he never really gets any sort of punishment, really. The people around him get punished a lot. All he ever loses is a car, you know, and it just it makes me bad. Yeah. I did it again, didn't I? Yeah. (laughs) Are you listening to me? I will not be ignored. (laughs) You have to keep saying it to me. No, uh, as seriously as Glenn Close took all of this um, from like psychologist and was very protective of this character, she has gone on to be, you know, she's been in panels about mental health. She, She has done a lot of fundraising for mental health and for mental health awareness, but she also has some fun with it. I mean, 
she, and she kind of had to. She had kind of had to let it go because people still to this day walk up to her and say, "You saved my marriage," and she's like, "That's kind of sad." You know, it really is. You know, but she also went on two years later onto SNL and portrayed the exact same character on <laughs> SNL for a hilarious skit. Yes, you know, for group therapy session, and you know, she also like still has the knife and hangs it on her wall in her kitchen, saying, "It's beautiful, made of wood and paper. It's a work of art, and it's nice for our guests to see it. It lets them know they can't stay forever." <laughs> I want to meet her. I think we'd be friends. Yeah. Uh, But you know what? I feel like... I feel like Michael Douglas is kind of underrated in this film too, especially in that uh, original ending scene. Um, Like, he does a lot of work here and it's, it's... it's a lot of subtle acting. It's not over the top. It's not exactly meaty, but he has to carry the film a lot because he he's does. in every other scene. And he was he was really busy at the time. He was literally working on Wall Street, which he won the Oscar for at that year, exactly the same time. So every yeah. week, every other week, he was working on Wall Street, and the next week he was working on this film, and they would alternate so he could do both films at the same time. I mean, it was his heyday. So yeah. Um, he does do a good job in this movie, and I think, like I just said before, how much I, I, I hate his character, um, I think it takes a good actor for you to make that strong of an emotional choice or that kind of a you know attachment or disattachment to a character. So that it shows that the acting in this movie is great. Equally good, I think, is the, small, the young girl who played Ellen. Um, and I, I rarely ever say that children are gifted actors. I think that they have to have some scenes like prodded out of them. Mm-hmm. And I know there's one in particular that we'll talk about. There's a scene where Michael Douglas has finally told uh, Ann Archer how much you know, they had an affair. And the daughter walks in and she's standing there holding her stuffed unicorn and petting it and starts to cry and like covers her face. And I was so affected by that scene that I wrote in my notes. I was just like, this little girl just made me ball. Like I was crying. And then Chris ruined it for me by <laughs> telling me this anecdote. Well, Michael Douglas had to go behind the camera and basically say, what are you doing with that unicorn? I'm going to take that unicorn from you. What are you doing, you stupid little girl? And stuff like that, you know? Oh, God! And so that's why you see her, like, clutch the unicorn tighter. She's, like, starts to cry. And, of course, he's like, I hated doing that. But you do what you got to do to, you know, to work with children to make it a believable scene. And it worked, yeah. you know? But, I mean... He scarred that little girl for life. I'm and she sure. never returned to acting again. That's right. <laughs> as far as I and know. She was in a movie where someone threatened to take away her stuffed animal and she got to play with a bunny and then it was dead. To this day, she is clutching that unicorn. <laughs> <laughs> so I think one of every, the, the moment in this movie that everyone remembers and everyone talks about, whether or not you've even seen the movie, it has become pop culture, is that bunny boil scene. Yeah. Right? And to me, it is one of the most masterfully edited scenes in cinema mm-hmm. where she's running up to that bunny cage so excited to see it it cuts back and forth to Beth and Archer coming into the to the kitchen and noticing the pot going the editing is so tense and fantastic and the child screams because the bunny's gone and she's slowly lifting off that lid and you know what's going to be underneath it and there it is in the briefest of seconds a bloody a bloody boiling rabbit I still remember the first time seeing this because I was watching it in film school and so we would watch everything as students together and it was a big auditorium and you could hear the intake of breath as she's entering the kitchen because everyone just kind of fears what's there right you know and they're like no she did you know like Mm -hmm. you know like a little murmuring soft murmuring in the audience and everyone's like you know and then she raised it and and everyone's like oh no no (laughs) and it's so weird because out of everything she does in this movie I mean Glenn Close slits her own wrists and wipes the blood on Michael Douglas's face but for some reason everyone's horrified at the dead rabbit 
yeah. on the stove, right? And I think is that that crosses some sort of like, especially an American family line, right? You don't be killing our pets and things. Well, she does it several times. You're like, oh my god, she has taken the kid. You're like incensed for this family, right? And oh my god, she's staring at them through their windows, and, and oh my god, she's blowing a, a bunny, you know, yeah. and. You know, it's like all these things just escalates. And that's another thing that I want to talk about is they kind of push each other towards escalation. This is not just a one-sided cartoon villain on on Glenn Close's part for the role of Alex because, you know, he's the one that kind of is equally flirting with her at the beginning. They have their fling. She gets a little clingy, but it's eventually him that, you know, she eventually says, you know, I'm pregnant. And, you know, he is uh, basically um, breaks into her apartment to go search it, you know, for clues as to whether she's actually pregnant or not or who knows what else finds nothing, you know, Uh, and, and, and then later on. She's doing all this other stuff and he breaks in and assaults her, basically tries to kill her, you know, first. And and before that, even he says he threatens to never come around because she's just calling. She's calling the house and because she's theoretically pregnant. We still don't really know if she was actually pregnant or not. He calls the gynecologist. The gynecologist says it's true. So I'm you know, you could say that she was pregnant, um, but I don't know. It I mean, that yeah, who, it's it's safe to say that we don't know whether anything coming out of that character's mouth is fact or fiction. Right? That's true because he, when he does search the he, the apartment, he does find that the weird story she told about her father is turned actually out to true. actually be true because right. she had taken it back as a joke, and you know to kind of lighten the mood a little bit. But yeah, it turned really, out to be kind of true. So. I think that scene where she tells Michael Douglas that she's pregnant. Is like the turning point for that character. Right? Well, he also look, well, what I was saying is like he, he the first time he goes there and confronts her about it, like he pushes her against a wall and says, you'll leave it alone. And later on, he goes in and tries to strangle her. He's already breaking in her while she's not there. Like he has been breaking in and assaulting her before she ever assaulted anything or broke into anything on her part. So this guy is basically, you know, he could have cut her off from the beginning, you know, and just let it go. But he let it escalate you know, over and over and over again. And he's part of that, you know, and there's no way this movie could have ended well for him better than it did with her basically attacking them and getting killed for it. Because, you know, I'm quite shocked that they didn't, you know, obviously it's, it's great that she died the way she did because she probably has strangled bruises on her throat from him. Yeah. You know, he could have gone to jail. He would have gone to jail if she had gone to the police. Right. You know, so there's just a lot of blame to throw his way here. And he's just obviously like, you don't know what happened before. You don't know. It alludes that this is the first time he's cheated, but you don't know that. And you don't know that that'll be the last time either. Has he really learned his lesson? Are you once a cheater, always a cheater? I don't know. Some people believe that. Well, I know that this movie is probably <clears throat> back in 1987. I would, I would assume that it was the perfect movie for couples to go see. Right. Cause men get to watch another man living out his sexual fantasy or whatever, even when he's coupled, having his cake and eating it too. Mm -hmm. And women get to poke their men in the side at the same time and say like, this is what will happen if you cheat on me. You know what I mean? So it's a huge morality tale for, for everybody involved, for every audience member. It's unfortunate that Glenn Close's character, Alex, gets lost in the mix, right? But I think that her performance in this movie and Fatal Attraction itself has created something in horror that we really only got to see in like the late eighties and early nineties. It created a sympathetic female villain. Yes. And that became a pattern. And so February is women in horror month. And it's, it's a perfect time to talk about the, the imitators and movies that followed it, because I think the sympathetic female villain in horror films 
is great. It's one of my favorite villains to watch because it's so layered and there's so much context involved and you can look beyond the actual story to see why this person is the way they are. So we're talking about movies like Fatal, not Fatal Attraction, Basic Instinct, right? Yeah. Which is great. And I think that's a, a really far-flung example because, you know, the female villain in that movie is actually very murderous, right? But then you have things like Single White Female. You have The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, right? And all these women are doing these really evil things just because they're not getting the base desires that they want as a woman, right? And I realize what this sounds like, you know, a gay male talking about the needs and wants of a woman. But these are things that we've seen in film time and time again. Well, like any movie that's really popular, you see kind of a rash of, of copycats come out, including copycat. But, and, some of them, <laughs> and some of them are great and some of them aren't. But, you know, like I feel like there's sympathetic villains, the female villains, like way far back. Like if you look about like All About Eve or whatever happened to Baby Jane, like right. maybe less or more, um, you know, sympathetic depending on the film. Uh, you know, but there's, I mean, fuck Rosemary's baby. I mean, <laughs> these are normal women to a certain degree. Right. Um, and there's, there's, I feel like there's a lot of examples before this, but in this particular flavor, mm-hmm. you know, is what, what we saw a pattern come after. It was just something about those nineties, those early nineties movies with these female villain characters. And I mean, maybe I just have a soft place in my heart or maybe it's the movies that I watched when I was in my formative years or whatever, you know, but even some of Adrian Lynn's movies that came afterward, like indecent proposal, which doesn't really have a sympathetic female villain, but you know, the villains in his movies are sympathetic regardless. Yeah. Right. Um, but then we started transitioning into these unsympathetic female uh, uh, villains like in Misery or something. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I mean, we can even sympathize with her, too. I mean, if we're going to talk about mental illness and female villains, I mean, she's got to be right up there, too. And maybe we'll save that conversation for when we talk about Misery, you know? Yeah. But, I mean, it it's a clear pattern, especially in this particular time. And I would love to do more research to see why, like what was going on with feminism at the time that, you know, they needed to create this kind of villain that got repeated over and over again. I'm your number one fan, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Since we're talking about imitation, I really wanted to talk about something involving fatal attraction, and that's how far can parody go before a movie starts to lose its effect, right? I mean, this has got to be one of the most oft-parodied movies in the history of cinema. Things from Saturday Night Live have done it. Family Guy has done it. You know, it's everywhere, even to today. And... I start to think that if people have not seen Fatal Attraction before, but they've seen all these parodies, is it going to have the same effect for them on their first viewing? Has it been lost on, you know, younger generations? I really think that our generation here in in our late 30s, you know, is probably the, the last people who can find this movie to be tense and frightening, simply because we have things like landline telephones without caller ID, you know? Yeah. And so, I mean, I just, I think that, you know, the more we parody this movie, the more imitators that we make from it, it's going to lose its effect completely. Or I fear that will happen. Uh, you know, sure. I think it goes in cycles. You know, and then something else that comes along and, and, and does it slightly differently and brings something new to the table. And I don't think it ever ends or it ever should end. And I think we learn from the things that we've you know watched in the past and things modernized by themselves. And I think that, you know, it could be time for another fatal attraction, you know, with a modern lens. I think that would be interesting to see. I think so, too. And, you know, side note, stay tuned for sequel ideas coming in a couple weeks. That's true. 
well, I think that we have some questions to ask other than the parody one. Yeah. And uh, Chris, is Fatal Attraction a horror movie? I think so. Uh, you know, and uh, we have a larger genre discussion to have about this, and that'll be coming up as well. But uh, it's definitely it's in, in that thriller camp, which is kind of Venn diagrammed into the umbrella of horror or macabre. And uh, yeah, it's a uh, it's it's close to one of my favorite, which is like what I would call true horror, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I really, uh, I really dig it. Yeah. IRL horror. Is that, yeah. yeah. Basically. I mean, this is totally something that can happen in real life. And that, that is frightening. I think that Adrian Lynn does some things in this movie that, that make it horror. He made some really artistic choices in in um, his direction and the acting just pushes it into a sort of horror realm too. Uh, and we don't have to look any further than some of his other films like Jacob's Ladder, which is completely steeped in horror or horror adjacency. Um, this man knows how to make a horror movie. These actors know how to act in a horror movie. Glenn Close certainly is a great horror actress. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. right up there with the rest of the canon. Uh, were you scared when watching Fatal Attraction? Uh, yeah. Uh, I don't know if I was scared. Just like... It's just a very specific brand of scared, right? Like it's very like um, paranoid. Yeah. It makes you paranoid, and it makes you wonder, like, what is possible? What is this person going to do? Like, just simply not understanding another human being, someone with this level of mental illness. Um, you know, it, it almost becomes uncanny valley-ish. And so I think there's a lot of horror to be found in not knowing what your fellow man is capable of and having that centered and focused on you. I will say that I found myself a little bit more tense or scared on this particular viewing. And I, I don't think that has anything to do with you know the situation I was watching in. I think it has everything to do with my age. And I think that the older you get, and if you find yourself in a stable relationship, and you start to realize how much blind trust you put into your spouse. Yeah. Or, and we're about or the ages one. now of, yeah. uh, of these people and these characters. I think Lynn Close was 40 when she made this, and I think Michael Douglas was around there. And she says in the movie that, that she was she was playing a 36-year-old. So, I mean, yeah. in her 40s, playing 36. I mean, this is our age. Oh, and I just you, turned 36. <laughs> <laughs> see? And I mean, like, the stakes become so much more real for you when you're watching something like this. And you're like, well, what would I do in a situation if my spouse did this to me or if the person they did this with were doing something like that and i think that somebody in their like you know late teens early 20s are not going to get the same effect that somebody in their late 30s early 40s or beyond would that you've created a life with somebody and it's just truly frightening to think of you know the consequences of what could happen if something is broken well i think this is just as visceral for younger viewers but in a different way like we view things differently at at every age i think because i remember seeing this in my younger 20s or actually teens I guess mm-hmm. with film school because uh, I was probably 18, 19 when I saw this for the first time and it affected me and I never forgot it. Did you and know that cheating was I've bad? I've watched hundreds <laughs> and thousands of you know horror movies around that time that I probably just don't remember Right. but you do not forget this film. Nope, you do not forget That is something you can say for this film is that you do not forget the story what happened, uh, certain scenes the performances, all the of bunny? that. Yeah, I mean, so we before we started this podcast, guys, Chris and I sat down and we made our top 20 horror films separately and showed each other because we were trying to figure out what movies we wanted to cover. This was not in either one of our top 20, but I'm starting to reconsider. I think that this definitely needs to move into that. So I'm going to have to revisit mine. But it's on our list because we had put all the movies that we put hundreds of movies on our list. Yeah. And we basically highlighted the ones that we'd be interested in talking about. And this is one that we have both highlighted. Mm-hmm. And those were kind of few and far between. 
So obviously it was definitely on our radar as far as being able to talk about it. That's right. I think we both wanted to revisit this movie and I'm so glad that we did. Like I really enjoyed watching it. Oh yeah. I hope that all of y'all go out and watch it too. But before we send you out into the night, we have one last question and probably most important, Chris, who's the hottest guy in Fatal Attraction? Well, Michael Douglas, obviously. Is he the only guy in Fatal Attraction or his friend? What was that? The the friend is the kind of the dumpy lawyer friend. Right. And, uh, of or course, Fred Gwynn, the Fred one that gets the, the icy death stares from Glenn Close <laughs> at the beginning of the film. I'd be giving him those same icy death stares, I think, so I don't... Yeah. It's got to be Michael Douglas. And we yeah. get to see his ass a lot in this movie. And, I mean, I was... <laughs> I don't find Michael Douglas especially attractive, but while watching this movie this time, I was like, I can totally see, you know, for a 19 gay male, whatever, watching it. I mean, he's got some attractive qualities and he certainly exudes a lot of like confidence and masculinity, I guess, Uh no matter how toxic it ends up being. But I mean, I would say that he's got to be the hottest guy just because there's not that many. Agreed. Well, I think that about wraps it up on Fatal Attraction. Guys, it's February, like we said, and it's officially Women in Horror Month. Yeah, we kicked it off early with Rosemary's Baby last month. So hopefully you're enjoying our thematic uh, pattern here. That's right. So um, look for all the horror hashtag on Twitter because other podcasts are going to be recording some special episodes about women in horror that you should really look for because we're looking forward to them as well. Yeah. Um, guys, on Patreon coming up this month, we have some really cool stuff. We have our Brightest Women Award for Special Effects Makeup Artist. And what else do we have, Chris? We've got our entrails of a scene. That's right, where we sort of break down the scariest and more tense scenes that we remember from horror films. And this month, we're talking about Hamlet, as well as... Single white female. Mm -hmm. And we're trying something new, guys. We're doing Shooting the Flames. It's a segment where Chris and I just sort of sit down and have a, you know, really casual conversation about, like, news from the horror community, upcoming entertainment stuff, or anything that's just going on. So go to patreon.com slash filmflamers. Check us out. Uh, We appreciate all the support. Guys, and after all that Patreon stuff, don't forget our regular feed, which you get all the time. We'll also be doing some Fatal Attraction sequel ideas. We have our best of 2018 and some looking forward to 2019 and a very, very special Valentine's Day edition of Film Flamers Top 10. So keep on the lookout for that. Yes. And next month, we'll be covering my favorite horror film of all time, Night of the Living Dead. Yes. I have so much to say about it. I just cannot wait. I just love Jorge Romero. (laughs) Jorge Romero is my favorite. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, we really appreciate all the support and all the listens. Uh, You really make this so much fun for us. Uh, We just completed our six-month anniversary of podcasting, I guess you would say. Guys, for more information, or if you just need to get in contact with us, you can find us on social media at The Film Flamers on Twitter and Facebook. If you need a longer format to talk to us, you can email us. And what's our email address, Chris? Tiredqueens at filmflamers.com. That's right. And we are tired, so we're going to have to wrap this up. And uh, don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. We really, really love it when you do that, and we'll probably call it out. That's right. We appreciate all the feedback, guys. Well, until next time... Sweet dream. Hey. What? 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 I will not be ignored, Chris. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. One more time. Sweet Sweet dreams. dreams.
Bitch. <laughs> <laughs>